something that is difficult, and that is to preach on something as big as depression and discouragement in one sermon. I'm not going to do a sermon series. I'm not going to teach um, what you would typically think of coming from the pulpit on a sermon or sermon series on depression. I have this morning something that is different, something that is abnormal to dealing with this subject. I have what I would call uh, a word, not a message, not a sermon, but a word. And the thing about a word from heaven is that it requires the supernatural anointing of God to deliver it. It it requires an anointing to hear it. And it's not uh, clinical. It's not medical. It's not a vast explanation, really, of why you deal uh, with the things we deal with and how to get out of it. It's a word from God. It's something that I would call a deeper um, and, and, and more precise view of God's view of depression. Many of you know I've battled depression before. I've battled it violently for six years. Uh, through the power of God, I overcome and have been depression-free for uh, three and a half years, four years almost now. Uh, but I will say that, that depression in some sort always tries to come back on. And, and this is a very relevant uh, topic. But I need this morning, while I, I, I see what I want to preach, I need the anointing of God to communicate it. And so we're going to pray that God would help me to do that this morning. Um, I'm going to be reading what might seem like a strange text on depression, but... Um, By the time we're done, I think we'll see why it's not. Let's look at verses 1 through 8 of 1 Kings chapter 19. Because our reading is short this morning, I will ask that you stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. As we read from 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, the Word of God says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. And he said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Let us pray. Father, we are so blessed to be this morning in your presence. God, we know that where two or three are gathered there, you have promised to be in our midst. But, Father, we also know that we enter into your presence through your gates and into your courts through praise and thanksgiving. And this morning, God, we have come and we have done that, Lord. God, we have worked to worship you in spirit and in truth. And, Lord, surely your presence has been manifested, God, as I have watched you work on lives without a single word being preached. And, Father, we ask now that the great preacher would come. God, that's not me, that's you. Lord, we pray that the anointing of heaven would come. God, that's not something that can be worked up, Lord. It's something that only You give. And Lord, I acknowledge my need for it this morning. God, I pray that You'd come upon me in power and anointing. God, I pray that You'd anoint the ears of our hearts to hear, the eyes of our hearts to see. God, I pray that Your Word this morning, the Word from heaven, God, that it would penetrate hearts. God, that chains would be broken forever. God, that people would be set free forever. 
God, that people who have struggled for years and not understood why they can't get free, that today, Lord, they would understand why. And God, that they'd be willing to get out of their seats, to get off of their hands, to quit waiting and waiting and waiting and come to the altar and meet with God and let you touch them there. God, we pray that sinners would be saved this morning. God, that you would do what only you can. Lord, that you'd move in our midst. God, that you'd work the supernatural amongst us. God, that you would be glorified because of it. Lord, we ask these things. We pray these things to the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So in our text, we have Elijah, the great prophet of God, thinking to himself, it is enough, I'm ready to die. I want to say something that um, the feeling of wanting to die, the feeling of wanting one's life to end is uh, something that certainly, probably at some stage in all of our lives, uh, the major majority of people think and experience from time to time. That said, it is no excuse for suicide. Elijah did not take his own life. Elijah said to the Lord and put it in the Lord's hands and basically said, God, you kill me. Lord, you take my life. But nonetheless, this is where he was at. He was utterly discouraged. And one of the things that I want to say at the onstart of this sermon this morning is that discouragement and depression comes to all people. It comes to those who are famous. It comes to those who are not. It comes to those who are rich. It comes to those who are poor. Now, everybody, while they're in their depression, they think that their depression is based upon their circumstances, and they become convinced of that. But the reality is that discouragement and depression is, is no respecter of persons. Just as it's possible to be joyful, just as it's possible to have peace, just as it's possible to walk in, 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 without anxiety and fear, whether you're rich or poor, or whether you're healthy, or whether you're, you're this or that, or whether you have a big home or a small home, or new cars or old cars, just as it's possible to have joy and to have strength in all of those things, it is equally possible to suffer depression, to suffer discouragement, to have your joy zapped from you, and to be thinking things you shouldn't think. Depression is no respecter of persons. Now, I also want to say that depression works differently on different people. You know, a lot of times when we think of depression, we think of the extreme. You know, you want to die, and you just want to sleep all the time, and you can't function, and you don't want to go to work, and you're just negative all the time. Now, that's an extreme um, spectrum of depression. That is an extreme spectrum of discouragement. But the reality is that any time that we begin to lose interest in things that are important to us, any time that we begin to start feeling uh, the lack of motivation to do what we know we should be doing, any time that we become weary of, uh, of the things that once used to, we used to find pleasure in, we don't want to hang out with people, we don't want to, we, there's just no joy anymore, any time that we begin to experience those things, we are battling discouragement. We are battling some form of depression. And a lot of people handle it differently. Some people cry. Some people want to go to the room and lay down in, in bed and just sulk. And, and, and uh, others become angry and they, they're hard to be around. Some people go into, you know, the quiet stage where they just don't say anything. Some people, because of their personalities, do a better job continuing to function and go to work and live life. But... But, and on the outside, it would look like they're not really battling depression, but really the truth is inside they are. My point this morning is that to some degree, all of us at stages in our life will battle discouragement and depression. It's a no-brainer. We are in a world that has fallen. We are in a world that is sick. We are in a world that is full of chaos and pain and suffering. If you're saved here this morning, not only do you live in that world, but because you're not of that world, you are an enemy of that world. And so the world system, the world itself, and Satan and all that he that is underneath of him is out to destroy you, to still kill and destroy. And it is a no-brainer that if I'm going to live in that world, but not be of that world, that I'm going to battle discouragement from time to time. You can be discouraged even in triumph. That's the thing that blows my mind. Elijah has just literally worked one of the greatest 
single-handed victories that anybody has ever worked except Jesus on the cross. I mean, here's a guy that had enough courage and umph and tenacity to say, I'll stand all by myself against 850 false prophets, you and me, let's meet and let's have a showdown. And he don't only show up, but he shows up and he wins. And God sends fire from heaven. And the whole people say, His God is the one true God. And He slays 450 of the false prophets. And we're talking the next day. Now He says He wants to die. You see, even in triumph, we read some of the things of uh, uh, King David. And a lot of David's writings that sound, uh, woe is me. A lot of the Psalms where his heart is broken uh, were written during the period of time before he was king, while he was running for his life. But some of them were written after he had been king for a long period of time. We see that in Psalm 51, which really his psalm is a response to his sin uh, with Bathsheba. And we see that, that even after becoming a great king, that King David battled discouragement and depression. And so depression doesn't just come. That's the thing that's funny about it. It doesn't just come when everything's bad. It'll come when things are good, and then you'll find a reason to think things are bad to understand your depression. But it can come after triumph. A lot of times, we don't even realize how tired we are, which is a lot of what depression is. It's just being, it's being weary. It's being tired. And we just keep pushing through like... When, when, when there's the showdown on Mount Carmel, because Elijah knows he's got to keep going. And so he's focused on the goal. He's focused on what God's called him to do. And this is pushing him to go. It's pushing him not to think about how tired he is, but all of a sudden, then comes the victory. All of a sudden, there's nothing else to fight for. All of a sudden, everything that I was working on and focused on and motivating me to go, it's done. And all of a sudden, comes the crash. Depression and discouragement can come to all of us. And if we don't learn how to deal with it, it will destroy you. You see, the, the, the thing that we have to understand is that we, 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 have to, we have to get our minds around the fact that from time to time you're going to deal with discouragement. And you need to have an understanding of how to deal with it. Because if you don't know how to deal with it, it'll deal with you. If you don't know how to overcome it, it will overcome you. And it will come. Most of, most of the time it'll blindside you. You won't even be ready. But how does it come? Let's, what can we learn from the text? First of all, I want you to notice that really it's all about our thinking. It's all about the mindset is really what it's about. It's about our point of view. What happened to Elijah is that Jezebel got in his brain. Jezebel was one of the most wicked women the Bible has ever recorded. It could be argued she was the most wicked of the wicked, and there's never been a more wicked than her. You could argue that about Jezebel. But the point is, she was evil. This woman was wicked. She was a devil worshiper. She worshipped as many false gods as she could. She was out to kill Elijah. She was a wicked evil man. She's the woman that when her husband came in whining about how he couldn't uh, get somebody's vineyard, her response to her husband is, who cares whose it is? Just go kill the man. Your king, take what you want. Take his life. Kill him. She was a wicked and evil woman. And she represents the reality that there is a wicked and evil enemy of the children of God that wants to discourage us, that wants to get a hold of us. But understand something this morning. Understand, she didn't come up to Elijah and grab him. She didn't have him on the gallows, tied down, with the razor about to come down and cut his head off. She just said. That's all. She just said. She said, what you did to those 450 prophets, I'm going to do to you. She said, or let the gods deal with me so severely. Didn't we just learn yesterday that your gods are nothing, woman? Didn't we just learn yesterday that there's one true God of heaven and earth and that one man alone standing against all your false gods and all your false prophets is more powerful than anything you could ever worship? What are you talking about, your gods? Your gods were defeated yesterday. 
she got in his brain. He got to thinking, well, I, 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 I remember what, what, what all that blood looked like. I remember. I, I remember some of them screaming for their life just before they were slaughtered. I, I, I know what that looked like. And it began to get in his brain. It's really all about our thinking. You see, what happens is we stop seeing the good that God is doing. That's the thing that is amazing about this story. And it's amazing about so many that get wrapped up in depression. It's not as bad as they think. I mean, God has just proven that He is God. Heaven has just let opened up and sent fire down and licked up the water and the altar and the burnt offering. And the people have turned back to God and they're saying, Jehovah's the one true God. And yet, Elijah can't see that. A day later, all that Elijah sees, it says he saw. Isn't that interesting? In verse 3, he saw that. What, he, what did he see? He heard something and began to visualize in his brain what was going to happen to him. You see, when we begin to deal with discouragement, we stop seeing the good that God is doing. And then we start seeing the bad in everything, which in this case was false. He wasn't going to die. He wasn't in danger of his life. But sometimes we just start seeing the bad in everything, the negative. It's just negative, negative, negative. When we're discouraged, when we're depressed, when we're dealing with, with, with uh, you know, just not feeling the way we should feel, all of a sudden we start seeing the negative in everything. Here's one of the statements I'm going to make that's, that's very important to understand God's response to this. The problem there is you start looking at everything else instead of looking inward. You start seeing all that everyone else is doing wrong, all that all the negative, and you stop you stop looking inward to see what God's doing in you. You stop looking heavenward to see what God's doing from His throne, and you just start seeing the bad. You know the reality is we see what we want to see. That's the truth. If we want to see negative, we'll see negative. But if we want to see what is good and pure and holy, we'll see what's good and pure and holy. Two people could sit in the exact same service this very morning and leave, and one of them that's a negative Nancy, that's always negative, 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 could leave and tell you everything that went wrong. The preacher preached too long. The sound's this way. We do this wrong. We do that wrong. And blah, 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 blah. But then somebody who chooses not to focus on the negative, to sit through the exact same service, can sit in there and say, God was moving. People were encouraged. The Word was preached. And, and leave with a totally different perspective. Because we see what we want to see. That's the thing that's difficult about talking to people who are depressed or discouraged. They don't want to see. They want you to see why it's so bad. Hey, I've been there. I'm, I, I'm talking about you, but there's three fingers pointing back at me. This is just real stuff. This is what happens when depression and discouragement begin to grip our hearts. We start feeling sorry for ourselves. You see, that's, that's what uh, Elijah said. He says he prayed that he might die. It's enough. He said, I know better than my father. You start feeling sorry for yourself. One of the key things that you'll see about people in depression is me, 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 me. 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 How this affects me. What about me? How I feel about it. How I think about it. And all of a sudden, we don't care about the rest of the world. We don't care about the fact that the whole world isn't about me. That, that when decisions have to be made, everybody's viewpoint has to be considered. That, there, that there's a reason things work the way they work. We, all of a sudden, we don't care. It is all about me. How this affects me. And ultimately, it's about our thinking. You know what 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5 say? Second Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 4 and 5. They say this. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing 
that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You see, ultimately, it's about the thought life. And that this is a spiritual thing that we're doing. This is a spiritual battle. It's not about people. It's not about our enemy. It's not about, oh, the world's so bad. And, and, and the government's this. And the Republicans are idiots. And the Democrats are even worse. And it, it's not about that. It's not about your job. It's about the reality that the, the battle's for your mind. What are you going to think on? What are you going to focus on? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12 say this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's the scheme. Here it is again. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore. You, got, you can't be ignorant of the devil's schemes. You need to know what do you want to do when discouragement comes your way. You need to understand there's a battle for your mind. It does matter what you think on. It does matter what you think about. It does matter that you focus on what is true and pure and holy. It does matter that you get your eyes off of yourself and realize this world is bigger than you. That God created you for something bigger than you. That God is bigger than your problems. He's bigger than your circumstances. He is able to do above and abundantly beyond all that you could ever ask or imagine. Get your eyes off of your mess. Get your eyes off everybody else's mess. Get your eyes back on the King of glory. Know that He's in divine control and you have nothing to fear. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. He said it over and over and over again. I'm telling you today, the battle is for your mind. And Jezebel got in the brain of that prophet. Romans 12 tells us we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Isaiah 26 tells us that that, 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 that when we stay our mind upon the Lord, God keeps us in perfect peace. Isn't it interesting? She didn't do anything but threaten the man. Sometimes we can be the bravest people, but those paper bullets of, of, of threat take down the biggest of us. So now he's ready to die. Let's move to Elijah for a moment. He's ready to die. He says, it's enough. Have you ever felt that way? I've had enough. I'm just done. Sick of dealing with this. Sick of dealing with people. Sick of God never doing anything great. Even though yesterday was a pretty good day. But listen, if, if I take yesterday and, and, and I put it in the total of you know 60 days, that was just one day. 59 of those 60 days have just been blah, and today's even worse. God never does anything great. It's enough. I'm just ready to die. Discouragement makes us think really stupid, doesn't it? It's amazing how fast our thinking can get messed up. I just want to say, don't think you're above it. Don't think that, it, that it's always going to be some real slow thing coming on too that you can recognize. Sometimes it's the weirdest thing, but sometimes you can just wake up and all of a sudden you just feel it. He said, I'm no better than my father. You know what he's doing right now? He is discounting and discrediting everything that had just occurred. This is what people do who really struggle with depression and discouragement. They discredit all the good. You see, you talk to him about how good God does something, it's like, well, maybe. You talk to him about the fact, hey, you got a home, you got a, you know, you, you, you got a job, you got kids that love you, you got your health, you got two legs that can walk. Well, everybody's got two legs that can walk. No. No, they don't. No, they don't. Not everybody can have kids. Your marriage might be rocky. 
but I know people that have been waiting 10 years just to find the right person to marry. You see, it's all about perspective. It's all about how you choose to think. And when you're discouraged, like Elijah, you'll just start to discredit everything that's good. I'm no better than my father. Well, first of all, I didn't know the, the goal was to be better than your father's Elijah. The goal is to be who God called you to be. The goal is to honor and glorify God with your life. But he begins to discredit. He says it's enough. Now, here's what I want us to see. What is God's response to this? Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Here was God's response. God showed up. God met him where he was, and God met his need. Understand that this morning. God knows where you're at. See, nobody knew where Elijah was, which is what he wanted. Elijah wanted to hide. Elijah wanted to be somewhere else. He wanted to go where nobody could find him. Matter of fact, he even left his servant behind, probably to, to maybe try to uh, somehow divert whoever he thought was trying to track him down, that if they saw his servant, they'd think he was close by. And he goes all by himself into the wilderness, and he's sleeping underneath of a tree. And God says, Son... Daughter, it doesn't matter where you're at. doesn't matter how fearful you are. doesn't matter that you're running for your life like a fool. doesn't matter that right now discouragement and depression have gripped your heart when you really ought to be standing strong in the fact that I am with you always. I'm going to come to where you are, and I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to touch you. I'm going to send an angel. He's going to give you the strength that you need to get back on your feet and get moving on for God. I'm here to tell you this morning, God knows what we need to get us up out of our depression. He knows what we need to get us back up on our feet and moving once again. Because Elijah had decided he was going to lay down and die. You see, there are a lot of people this morning, spiritually, you've decided you're just going to lay down and die. You're just waiting for God to come back so that you can stop your miserable experience of the Christian life. And you've just decided you're just going to lay there and you're going to die. God is here this morning to tell you it's time to get up. It's time to get your strength back under you. It's time to take and eat and drink the water from heaven and find your sustenance and get back and do something for the Almighty God. He knew where Elijah was. He came to where he was. And my prayer is that somehow, someway, right now as I'm preaching, that God will speak to somebody's heart and say, I know where you are. You might not be under a broom tree. You might be underneath the confines of this building. But I know where you are. I've come to where you are. It's time to give you some strength. It's time for you to get back up. And it's time for you to eat and drink and get your strength and do what I've called you to do. God sent an angel. Alone in the wilderness under a tree. But God knew where Elijah was. Notice he said, arise and eat. Right now, God doesn't say anything to Elijah about Elijah's mess. He just says, arise and eat. In other words, the first thing you need to do is feed yourself. You know what happens with a lot of people, especially in the ministry, uh, they get so busy trying to take care of everybody else, they, they stop to feed themselves. And he said, Elijah, it's time for you to eat. It's time for you to take the food that I've prepared for you and put that in your mouth and swallow that down and eat it because you need strength. In other words, you're not going to be any good to your children if you're dead. You're not going to be any good to the church if you are going down. You're not going to be any good to the rest of this world. Elijah, you're not going to be a prophet of any use until you feed yourself. And there comes a time when we've got to take that responsibility to acknowledge that I am discouraged, I'm feeling defeated, I'm feeling depressed, and as long as I lay here and refuse to eat, as long as I lay here and refuse to feed myself, 
as long as I lay here and just sulk and whine and make excuses for why I feel like I should die, I will stay weak and I will be of no use and no good to anyone. Arise and eat. Get up and eat. Jesus said He was the bread of life. He said He's the living water in John chapter 4. I'm here to tell you this morning, God stands with arms wide open. Jesus said, is any money among you thirst? Let him come and drink. Oh, but we've got to be willing to drink. You've heard it said a hundred times. You can, t- you, you can take a horse to the trough, but you can't make a drink. This morning, that's the thing that I'm praying. God, help us be willing to arise and eat. Let us not just sit on our hands and sulk under the broom tree and say, Preacher, you don't know what you're talking about. I should be discouraged. I should be depressed. When God is saying, I don't even want to talk about it right now. I just want you to get strengthened. I just want you to get back up. I've prepared you something to eat. I've prepared you something to drink. Now take that thing and put it inside of you and see what comes of it. So Elijah ate. He looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and he lay down again. You know, the Bible, I believe that everything that we're told is for a reason. I don't think there's anything insignificant in it. And I believe it's significant that he lay down again to get more rest. And the angel of the Lord came back, here's what the Bible says, the second time. And touched him and said, the second time, arise and eat. Because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. You see, the first meal was to give him strength and help him get past all the stuff that he was dealing with behind him. But God said, now it's time that you eat and get moving forward. I've got another meal for you. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that he ate that thing and went in the strength of that meat for 40 days. Here's what it tells us. It's a supernatural meat. I've had some good steak, I've had some good hamburgers, but I've never had one that gave me 40 days worth of energy. This was food from heaven. This was God's supernatural touch. And I want to say thank God for the times when we are so discouraged, when we feel like there's no way I could ever get back up, and you weren't expecting it. You crawled up under that tree just hoping to die, and God showed up, and He touched you, and you got up, and you had strength to keep going on. You had new perspective. You had no idea you could feel that good again. And all that you're wanting to do now is just keep going and keep praising God because God sent you an angel. Because God sent you some food. Because God sent you some water from heaven to drink. And it just gave you strength that nothing else could. All the words of your friends, all the encouragement of the preacher, everything else that you were trying to do to somehow get some some, some courage back in you, it was failing but God showed up and He touched you like nobody could. He fed you like nobody could. He gave you drink from heaven and when you took it in, all of a sudden it just felt like, I can do this thing. I'm going to get up out of this place. I'm going to get up from underneath of this tree and I'm going to go somewhere. Thank God for the times that He comes and feeds us when we need fed. Amen? Thank God for His response to our discouragement. Now here is where I wanted to get. And I got here quick. It's only 11.45. Here's where I wanted to get. So Elijah has strength. 40 days worth of supernatural strength. That's good stuff. Right? Everything is good. Everything is better. God has shown up. Strength has come. A new day has dawned. I've got energy I've never had. My thinking seems to be so much more clear. And and I'm ready to go on. And I'm ready to do what God's called me to do. I'm not going to live my life under this broom tree. I'm not going to lay down on the job and die. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go in the strength of the Lord. Verse 9 says, And there he went into a cave. spent the night in the cave, and God came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? You see, God didn't deal with him in a broom tree. God's question, what are you doing here, Elijah, 
in and of itself shows that Elijah wasn't where he was supposed to be. And Elijah goes on and he says, well, you know, everybody's dead and I'm the only one left that loves God and, and I'm here to myself. You ever thought you were delivered only to find out later you weren't? You ever thought God just gave you the breakthrough and then later to find out, no, I'm still the same old person. Here I am again. Forty days ago, I was kicking and shouting, coming up out of that tree. I've got supernatural strength. I, I just wanted to feel that way forever. But now, I'm back in the cave. What do you do when you think you're delivered to find out really you're not? And here's what I need the anointing of heaven this morning to communicate somehow, some way. You see, there's a big difference between God giving you strength to get out from the broom tree and you actually getting delivered. God comes to Elijah and here's what he says. I'm just going to preach it this morning the way it comes. He says, what are you doing? In other words, your depression is your fault. What are you doing here, Elijah? The problem isn't that we need to look everywhere else. If you really want to get healed and you really want to come out of this, we're going to have to talk about you. Most people don't want to talk about you. They just want that supernatural strength every 40 days, right? And I've seen them. They go through the cycle and thank God for His graciousness. He knows how to handle it. He knows that Elijah was in no state under that broom tree for God to sit down alongside him and say, what are you doing here? Sometimes it's just not the time to talk about it. But the fact, and here's what I want us to see, the fact that God came in and gave Elijah strength and fed him with bread and fed him with water and just gave him supernatural strength to get back up does not mean that Elijah was going the right direction. And that's the problem with a lot of folks. They'll come and they'll get charged up. They'll come and they'll take the bread of heaven. They'll drink the water of Christ. And all of a sudden they're charged up. And God has given them the energy they need to move forward. But then they think to themselves, well, I can just keep going the same old way. And they get depressed. And most people, here's the way they want to live their life. They want to just keep running back to the broom tree. Same old problem, same old things. Running back to the cave. And then they want God to just give them supernatural strength. And listen, I have seen them by the multitudes. That's how they live their life, right? It's just like they go in spurts. It's like all of a sudden, God gives them energy and thank God for it. Thank God for His grace. Thank God for His mercy. Thank God that He knows when we just need energy to get up and move. Otherwise, we're going to stay there. But I'm here to tell you today, that's not the end regain. That's not all that God's after. And too many people I've seen, they just go in spurts. They'll just wait until they got all the energy in the world and God did move and they did drink from heaven and, and, they, and they met with God and all the stuff, I'm just going to get up and go and I'm not going to think about it. Forty days later, back in the cave. Waiting for God to give them another spurt. Waiting for God to give them another shot of energy. But see, Elijah was a spiritual enough man that God could deal with him. Some people aren't. God says, I'm going to deal with you now, Elijah. So here you are in this cave, and I have a question for you. Here's the question. What are you doing? Why are you here? And Elijah, you know, he answers just like all of us. Well, I've been zealous for God. In other words, I'm this great person of God. I've to- the, the children of Israel have torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. 
I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. First of all, he says, I alone am left. If you know the story, if you're familiar with, the, with, with, with all that's taken place in the last couple, couple chapters, you'll know that Obadiah, in chapter 18, had told Elijah that in just their small area, that there was a hundred prophets that Obadiah himself was keeping and taking care of. But Elijah says, I'm the only one. You see, that's what the depression and discouragement will do. Make you think you're the only one. Nobody's ever suffered through what I'm suffering through. Yes, they have. Yes, they have. You're not the only person in the world to battle discouragement. I am not minimizing pain. But I'm telling you our thinking is wrong when we think we're the only one in the world. No, you're not. Some of you have had horrific, absolute, terrible things that have happened to you. Guess what, though? You're not the only person in the world that's ever had that happen to you. You're not. And Elijah, that's his response. And God says, I I want you to notice this, because God says, go out of the cave. I'm going to mention that in just a minute. And God comes by and passes by Elijah. And then finally there's a still small voice. But what does God say to Elijah again? What are you doing here? What are you doing? The problem is you. It's not everyone else. We need to deal with you. One of the things I've noticed about myself, one of the things I've noticed about others who deal with discouragement and depression, it's always everyone else's fault. It's their circumstances. It might not be a person. It could be my job so stressful. It could be this. It could be that. It could be bills. It could be so-and-so hates me. It could be these people don't like me. You know, it could be that milk was too much and the person in front of me got it on sale. It, whatever it is, people find reason to be discouraged. They find reason to be negative. And they justify it when in reality it's about you. If month after month, year after year, you find your relationships are continually messed up, you find that, 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 that you can't hardly get close to anybody, you find that there's always problems that end up in your relationship, you can't be friends, you can't be committed to anything, you can't be connected to anything, you're in this church one week, you're in that church the next week, you're in this ministry for a little while, then you get mad at the people in this ministry, so you're in that ministry for a little while, and, 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 and that never stops. Newsflash, you are the problem. It's not everybody else. It's you. You're the problem. You're the one that needs change. And you're the one that needs to be willing to look inward and say, God, why am I here? Because there's going to be problems everywhere, by the way. Because there's no such thing as a perfect human being other than Jesus Christ, there's no such thing as a perfect church, a perfect ministry, a perfect employer. You might have a Christian boss. You know one of the things I hated about being a Christian boss? Is everybody has a view of what a Christian boss is supposed to do. How he's supposed to run his business. How he's supposed to pay his employees. How he's supposed to do this. How he's supposed to do that. It was even more difficult for me as a pastor. Because somehow Christian pastor bosses actually even get more than just a Christian boss. But my point is, no matter who your boss is, no matter who your pastor is, no matter who your church is, no matter how your job is, no matter what school you work at or don't work at, no matter, no matter who you're married to, who you're not married to, it doesn't matter. People are messed up. And so, if people not being messed up is the prerequisite to having healthy, solid relationships, none of us could ever have healthy, solid relationships. You see, the issue is me. I've got to quit looking at me and just caring about me and how, you know, how does this affect me, 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 me. I've got to see that God wants to live in me and through me and that my life is meant to be a vessel to bless others. 
And that if I'll get my eyes off of me and start looking at what I can do for others, God will take care of me. I just need to honor God and glorify God in everything that I do. Doesn't matter if sister so-and-so snoods me when I walk by. I'm going to show up and worship God. And I'm still going to be friends with her. And I'm still going to be loving and kind. God says, why are you here? You've got to be willing to look inward. You've got to quit blaming your life on everyone else. There comes a time you've got to just take the responsibility upon yourself. A year ago, I gave my testimony to a group of teenagers. And during that testimony, I stopped and I said this. I said, one of the reasons that I have a difficult time giving my testimony about my childhood, my upbringing, and my, and my high school years is because what happens is, is when, I, when, I, when it becomes evident how bad it really was, the attitude of people is, oh, that's so sad. It must have been tough being me. Listen, I didn't become an evil, wicked, terrible sinner because of what happened to me as a kid. I became an evil, terrible, wicked, horrible sinner because I was terrible, evil, wicked, and horrible. That's why. The difference between me and most of my friends in high school is simply that I did not have constraints. And they did. And so while I looked like a horrible 16-year-old whose life was out of control by the time he was 18... They just waited till they were 21 out of the house. But really, we were the same. It was my fault. And until you're willing to own that your life is in your hands and God's hands, it's not in everybody else's hands, that I'm going to own my attitude. I'm going to quit making excuses for why I'm here. And now Elijah's in the cave. I'm going to run a little bit long this morning, but I am going to finish. Now, Elijah's in the cave, and what does God say? He says, go out and stand. That's God's response. Get out of the cave. You know, the cave is a terrible place to be. Elijah is complaining. I want you to think about it for a moment, right? He's discredited the other hundred prophets. Yet he's mentioned they don't even exist. Now, in his mind, they are so insignificant, they don't even exist. Now, there's only one explanation for this. Follow me for just a moment. There's only one explanation for this. He knew they existed, but apparently they were so unimportant to him, they didn't count. Now, how can this be? The only explanation that I can possibly come up with is they weren't willing to go stand with him on Mount Carmel. That when he thought they should have been out, they weren't. And we can argue he was right. But here's the ironic thing now. Where are you, man? Where are you? You're in a cave. And yet you're judging everybody else that's in a cave. Now, isn't that ironic? You're doing the same thing that you're using to justify saying they're insignificant and they don't count. That's what happens when you get backed up into darkness. It's amazing that the problem with the cave is that you get back in there, it's dark. You don't have to examine yourself whatsoever. And here's, the, here's what blows my mind about people who live there, who live in depression, who live in discouragement. They think they can see everything else so clear. You know, they, they back up in their little corner, and they pick up their toys and go home, and they cross their arms like so, and they look out the cave. Uh, and they can tell you everything about everybody. Yep, that person, that's sister so-and-so. She's sweet, isn't it? That, and that, that guy there, that, that, that's brother so-and-so. He's, you, know, he's, you don't want to be around him. You can't trust nothing he says. Oh, yeah, they're all cowards. None of them stand for God. None of them really love God. They're all fake. They're all hypocrites. They know so much about everybody else. That's what happens when you get in discouragement and depression. You get real nitpicky about everybody else, and you're not willing to look in at yourself. I want you to notice something. God don't even address the other prophets yet. God doesn't say you're wrong, even though he was. God says, get out of there. That's what he said. Get out. 
of the king. Stand on the mountain before God. Get out and stand. And as you know, a strong wind came, but God was not in the wind. An earthquake came, but God was not in an earthquake. A fire came, but God was not in the fire. And after that, a, a small, still voice came. Now look at verse 13. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Here's what I want you to see about coming out of depression. The Bible says he wrapped his face in his mantle. Obviously he thought he was going to get close to God. But he put his mantle on and he came to the entrance of the cave. Now, if I was probably originally right now, I would have changed that word entrance to the word exit because it's the same thing. The entrance and the exit are the same place of a cave. And I want to submit to you, he came to the exit of the cave. He put on his mantle. He heard God in that still small voice. He just heard it. Notice it doesn't tell us what he heard, actually. Something that's really interesting in my studies of, 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 of how this was actually uh, translated is that the word, a still, small voice, could possibly mean, even though it's translated voice, it could possibly mean total, complete, utter silence. In other words, there was an earthquake, there was a fire, there was great noise, and then there was a total, complete silence. God sometimes, He's teaching Elijah that He moves in ways that, that we're not always expecting. And Elijah hears that silence or that still small voice, if you want to call it that. The thing is, it doesn't tell us what the voice says. And then He comes and then God speaks. My prayer is that somebody this morning will have enough courage as Elijah did to put on that cloak and say, I don't fully understand what's going on, but God's dealing with my heart, and I'm going to come to the exit of the cave, and I'm at least going to listen. I'm coming out of this place, and I'm coming into the light, and I'm going to listen to see what God has to say. And interestingly enough, God knew what He needed to say the first time, and He said the exact same thing He said the first time. What are you doing here? Elijah responds as if God didn't hear well the first time, and Elijah's still kind of digging in his heels, as we all do when we're dealing with depression. He says, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And the Lord says to him, go. Get out of this place and return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. God tells him to get back about the business of what he's supposed to do. And then God says, finally, in verse 18, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Isn't it interesting he just throws that in there? Because really that has nothing to do with his mission. It has nothing to do with what's going to happen. God says, you know what, Elijah, actually I know that you knew about the hundred because I know all things. But what you didn't know is that your big story about how you're the only one left. I actually have 7,000. 7,000. And God reminded him this. It's not as bad as you think. It's never as bad as you think, child of God. As our worship team comes, it is never as bad as you think. God was at great work. God was doing great things. I can look at times in my life when I was super discouraged, when I was depressed, when my thinking was wrong, when I wasn't just when I just all around was not being who I should be. My faith was rocked. I was scared. I was just messed up in turmoil. And the reality is God was doing great things then. It wasn't what I thought. God was still in control. Lives were still being saved. His word was still being preached. Homes were still being held together. He was doing great and mighty things. It's never as bad as you think. This morning, maybe God just needs to come alongside you and give you the strength to get up and keep going. But I want you to see that when you're really going to deal with it, when you're going to break that cycle of, of, of continually getting up and having strength and then crashing again and you're just waiting for time and time again, God, to give you strength to go and go and go, there's going to come a time when you're going to have to let God 
approach you in your cave and look you face to face and say, why are you here? I don't want to talk about the rest of the world. I don't want to talk about your job. I don't want to talk about how you don't have the friends you think you should have or this or that. or what. I don't want to talk about any of that right now. I want to talk about you. Am I not enough? Have I not shown you the love and kindness of a father? Do you need more than me? Do you refuse the bread that I give you, which is life? Do you refuse the water which I give you, which is life? Because ultimately, child, that's the source of your life. That's the source of your pain. Is that you're looking everywhere else but me. And what you don't realize is that in doing that, those things become idols. Those things become idols before me. Where you don't think you can have joy, you don't think you can have peace, you don't think you can have happiness, you don't think you can have purpose unless you have all of these other things in your life. They're idols. Quit it, Elijah. Look back to me. And realize the same God who called fire from heaven and protected you on that mountain is the same God who walks with you everywhere you go. Rise up. Get out of that cave. Don't ever go back there, Elijah. We see that about Elijah. You never did go back to the cave. But he got his eyes on God. He got his thinking right. Trusted what God said and obeyed the Lord. Father, I pray that you move all over this room. I did the best to communicate what I think you want to
by the truth that God's love can reach beyond where I can fail. This is my prayer.